Good morning. I'm going to ask you to open your Bible uh, to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 7 to 10. We preached this text back in January, but today I want us to revisit this passage with a particular focus. So, First uh, Peter 4, 7 to 10. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Will you pray with me? Our Father, uh, we thank you that you have uh, given us your word that is eternally true, and that you have given us your spirit to dwell within us. Uh, And so we ask that uh, your spirit would bring to life uh, what you have spoken to us, uh, that uh, you would uh, help us to hear what it is that you have to say to us, that we might know, love, and serve you better uh, today. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. We have entered into the last days, that time between uh, Christ's first and second coming. Since the fall, all of human history has been moving towards Christ and his redemptive work and his ultimate return in glory at the consummation. Peter wants to bring Christ's return into focus so that it affects how we think about life and how we live it out. In essence, he is saying, time is running out. Any thoughts of laziness or procrastination are past. Christ is coming, so live for his glory today. What were you like as an 18-year-old college student, if you went to college, or, or as a high school student? I was the king of procrastination. I had an exam at 8 a.m. I would do everything but study. I'd hang out with friends. Uh, When they got tired of me, I'd uh, clean my room, which I rarely did. I'd do my laundry. I'd go down to the lounge at 
11.30 and watch Johnny Carson. But as all the other guys in the dorm went to their room, I knew it is now time. Time is running out, and so I must now get serious and do what I'm supposed to do. I did fine on my exams, but I knew I didn't do as well as I should and could have if I'd given more time to it. And so there was regret. I think too often we live the Christian life in a similar way. We're the king of procrastination. We know that our life is to be lived as a sacrifice to God, but it's not always the priority it should be. We don't ignore God, but we don't seek first the kingdom. We don't make him our ultimate priority, and so our lives often are not what they could and should be. And if we're honest, we have regrets. We allow other things, some of them good, some of them even important, to push out what is most important and ultimate. Because the end is near, time is short, Peter calls us to be sober-minded, to be more serious about the things of God. A few verses later, at the beginning of chapter 4 in 1 Peter, he says, live the rest of your days for God, not for the passions of the flesh like unbelievers. We should learn to pray Psalm 90. Teach us, Lord, to number our days. Live knowing God has already saved us from the foolishness of this fallen world, and now we can live for him. Live for God. Be about his business. Be mindful of his purposes for your life. Redeem the days that you have. And then the apostle in our text tells us how we are to do that. He tells us to be sober-minded, to live for God. Verse 8, love one another earnestly. The NIV translates that same word deeply. It's the idea of love one another intensely, eagerly, without ceasing. Verse 9, show hospitality without grumbling. Do it without murmuring or complaint. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use that gift to serve one another. And then he kind of captures it all by the end there saying, see all this as a stewardship of God's varied grace. 
like facets of a diamond, shine the character of Christ, the different aspects of his character in all of life. It is Christ in you that enables you to live a life for God, knowing that we will give an account. This morning, I want us to consider one aspect of this Christ-like character that Peter describes, and that's hospitality. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another. So what is hospitality? There's sort of a surfacey way that we can think about it. Be friendly to others. Make sure you have coffee and cookies if somebody shows up at your house. In the Greek culture of the New Testament, hospitality was the expectation of kindness towards strangers. It was to be generous and courteous to those you did not know, offering them food and a place to stay. Aren't you amazed in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, how often people meet strangers and all of a sudden they want to cook a meal for them and give them a place to stay? That was what was expected. But I think the Bible goes even deeper than just that cultural norm of hospitality. It's not just welcoming the stranger, but actually inviting them in to be part of your life and community. In the the Gospels, over and over again, we see Jesus extend and receive true hospitality. In fact, the religious leaders often condemned him for it. Jesus would hang out and eat meals with tax collectors and sinners. By doing so, he was inviting them to be his disciples, to be part of his community. And so Christian hospitality is to treat others, those outside, and extend an invitation to come inside, to identify and welcome them into our community. For Jesus to to eat with tax collectors and sinners was a religious taboo. You just didn't do it. But Jesus knew the difference between accepting a person and approval of their belief or behavior. Jesus eating with sinners was not condoning their lifestyle or their choices, but rather an invitation to follow him. Jesus' hospitality was intended to make sinners his friends so that he could change their beliefs and their behaviors.
How often do we hear Jesus draw people in offering forgiveness and then telling them, now go and sin no more? How often do we miss gospel opportunity? Because we are unwilling to associate with people with whom we disagree. How often do we miss opportunities to to impact people with the gospel because we disapprove of their behavior? In the late 1990s, uh, Rosaria Butterfield was a tenured professor at the University of Syracuse. You'll find this story in her book, uh, Confessions of an Unlikely Convert. She was a professor there with an expertise in feminist studies, queer theory, an 18th century English lit. And uh, she had read the Bible a number of times because she was researching ways to debunk it. And she wrote an article that got published in the local paper trying to uh, uh, question a, a particular Christian movement. And she says, I, ha- I got two kinds of responses. I got a pile of of fan mail and supporters and then a pile of hate mail. And then she says, I had one letter that I didn't know what to do with it. It was from an older pastor in the area, Ken Smith, who disagreed with her in the article but he did so with kindness and gentleness. And in the letter, he invited Rosario to come to his house and have dinner with he and his wife. She wasn't sure what to expect. Uh, I guess in part, she was, she was living a, a lesbian lifestyle She was expecting the pastor to condemn her to hell. But she figured, well, this will help in my research. So she decided to go, thinking that she would learn more and be able to expose Christianity as both oppressive and false. But the Smiths were far different than what she expected. They were loving and gracious. They listened attentively. And they spoke kindly. The Smiths welcomed her into their home and into their life. And quickly... 
dinner at the Smith house became a weekly event. She challenged them. She asked questions. And each time they spoke truth into her life and they demonstrated gospel power in how they treated her. After two years of receiving the hospitality of the Smiths, Rosario was ready to receive Jesus' hospitality. And the forgiveness that he offered. Jesus is now her friend too. She came to believe and trust in the one who gave himself for her. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to preach and to heal. But he sends them out intentionally without any provisions. Take nothing with you. Because they were to rely on the hospitality of those to whom they would preach. Because Jesus knew that as they preached and people believed, a natural response would be that for those new believers to show hospitality to those disciples. The power of the gospel they preached was to produce the gospel hospitality that they needed. After the 12 returned to Jesus, still in Luke chapter 9, uh, what happens next is that Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's another act of Jesus' hospitality. The crowds had kind of overstayed their welcome. At least that's what the disciples would have said. And the disciples wanted to just send them home. But Jesus says, no, you feed them. The disciples were caught up in their own ideas. Uh, perhaps they were tired, I guess hungry. They wanted the crowd to go away. But Jesus says, no, treat those outsiders as though they're part of our family. The, that's our invitation for them to be part of this community. Discipleship is really just a call to share in Christ's hospitality to us. What we receive from him, we share with others. And we call that evangelism. And we share what we receive with one another. That's what we call church life. Because I think we need to understand that salvation is by grace in its very nature is God's hospitality to us. 
think back to Exodus chapter 24, because we all have it memorized. God has redeemed Israel from slavery and bondage in Egypt. And now he has brought them to Mount Sinai. And at the mountain, he gives the Ten Commandments. And the covenant is confirmed. The covenant is read, and the people and the altar are sprinkled with the blood of the sacrifice. It's a type of baptism. As God forms them into his people, and they, oh, uh, they promise to obey all that God has commanded them. And then it says that Moses and the 70 elders representing the, the people went up the mountain and they saw God. Then they ate and drank before God. The covenant baptism is followed by a covenant meal representing the people's communion with God, their Redeemer. This meal is not an isolated event. The Bible is filled with meals before God, representing his hospitality and his provision for us. In the Old Testament, there was the Passover, a yearly celebration and remembrance of Israel's salvation in the Exodus. It looked back at how God and his judgment passed over his people who were marked by the blood of the sacrifice on their door. God had provided a substitutionary sacrifice for them in their place so that their firstborn wouldn't die. That was salvation to them. And earlier, think of uh, uh, the creation and fall in Genesis 1 to 3. There is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which Adam and Eve were not to touch or eat from. But there was also another tree, the tree of life, which was held out as another covenantal meal, a confirmation of righteousness to those who would obey. But man sinned, he was exiled from the garden, and as sinners we are outside of God's community. We are far off. But God's hospitality continues. And in Jesus, we are what? Brought near. Think of uh, Revelation 2.7. In Christ, God grants to us to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. But now it's not just one tree bearing one kind of fruit, 
But Revelation 22 tells us that on either side of the river of life, there is a tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. The tree of life in Revelation represents not just God's provision, but his superabundance to us. It is held out as this eternal covenant meal that we will have with God and one another in the new Jerusalem. It is the marriage supper of the Lamb. An, an endless meal of provision and hospitality for us. The fullness of that hospitality awaits the consummation of the ages when Christ returns. But we do get to experience some of it now, don't we? In the same book of Revelation, chapter 3, the spirit of the living Christ speaks to the church at Laodicea, saying, I know that you are neither hot nor cold. Would it be that you were either hot or cold, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Christ is warning them. Kind of like Peter in our text. Be sober-minded. Take account of your life. The end is at near. But Christ in Revelation 3 goes on and says in verses 19 to 20, to the church at Laodicea, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Turn from your sin, your lukewarmness. Turn from that and turn to me, to the living Christ. And then he says, behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. There's something special about sharing a meal together that Scripture uses over and over again to remind us of this union we have with Christ is one of fellowship and joy and abundance. And so the spirit of Christ in Revelation is, is saying then and now, repent and turn back and eat with me. Enjoy my gracious hospitality once again. And so Green Tree Church, when we gather, we come to feast upon Christ together through his spirit and his word as his adopted brothers and sisters. 
And each Sunday, we get a taste of that life that he has promised us. We participate in in eternity as we live our lives together, as we gather here as one, loving God and each other. We get a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like as we worship God together. Like Israel, we have a covenant baptism that forms us into the people of God and a covenant meal that renews our fellowship with Christ and each other. Baptism is not simply a a good thing, but is a sacrament of Christ that is to be obeyed. It is the gateway into the household of faith. The church is a baptized people, and so baptism is the initiation into community life. Think about Peter at Pentecost. Uh, The Spirit has come upon the disciples in the upper room. They've spoken in tongues. A, A crowd has gathered. Peter preaches Christ to the crowd. And in Acts 2, verses 37 to 39, it says, Now when the people heard this, what what Peter preached, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit as a gift. For the promise is to you and for your children and to all those who are far off, to everyone whom God calls to himself. Baptism, the water itself, the the actual ceremony does not save us, but the water applied in the context of the community of faith points us to Christ, to his life, his death, and his resurrection, which does save us. For the water uh, helps to identify us with Christ. And in him, we identify with each other. We are united together as we are united to him. Galatians 3, 26 to 28. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have put on Christ. So there is neither Jew or Greek, no slave or free. There is no male, no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are one. Tim Chester, in his book, uh, Truths We Can Touch, says the old loyalties and identities dissolve in the waters of baptism and are replaced with a new allegiance to Christ and his people. In baptism, we get this new identity, but in the Lord's Supper, which we'll participate in today, we get to renew 
this covenant identity, as we proclaim Jesus' death and resurrection and our death to sin in him. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul calls the Lord's Supper participation in the body and blood of Christ. It's an act of communion with him together with each other. We are one in him, yet there are still things that divide us, aren't there? Lots of things in life can separate us. Economics, culture, politics, race, social issues, even theological differences. But for all those differences, which may be real, we have far more in common. We have in common what is most important. And so scripture tells us to maintain the unity that we have. Think of Romans 12, 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so as we eat and drink this morning, we confess our sins against God and each other. That's what communion is, isn't it? We, we proclaim Christ's death, but he calls us to examine our own hearts to make sure that there's not sin there. That's one of the joys of the Lord's Supper is the, the ability and the opportunity to examine ourselves particularly as we relate to one another. Are you holding a grudge? Is there something that separates you from a fellow believer? This is the time to confess and get rid of it. Let me make a suggestion. This morning as we uh, participate in the Lord's Supper. We will enjoy God's hospitality uh, given for us. And so there will be this call to consider Christ. But as you consider Christ, consider one another. Look around the room at your brothers and sisters. And remember that we are one. We are a family. Perhaps you'll see someone who rubs you the wrong way. And as you consider Christ, you remember that he died for them. And that you'll be together forever. And so pray for them. And pray for yourself. Let the Lord's Supper be the catalyst to break down the barriers that get in the way of us living as the one people of God. And then decide to extend true biblical hospitality to them. 
for the sake of Christ. Rosary Butterfield, the, the Syracuse professor that I mentioned, uh, in her latest book uh, called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, uh, she talks about practicing radical, ordinary hospitality. Radical in the sense that it's different than the world. Ordinary in the sense that it should just be what happens in our life. And she says, we should see our home, money, and time as God's varied grace to further his kingdom. Think of Galatians 6.10. As we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Build time in your life for interruptions. Where your schedule can be adjusted so you can allow God to fill it with other things. Like maybe babysitting for a friend on the fly because they have a need. We're taking an elderly church member to the doctor. Doing good for those that are part of your life. Um, uh, many of you remember uh, George Filippo. He had this great knack of showing up uh, in my office when I was busiest. And he didn't care. And, and typically it was just chit-chat at first, but there was always a deeper reason. And so I was glad to stop and chit-chat for a little bit so we could get to what was really on his heart. Impacting people takes time. And it doesn't just happen in the five or ten minutes that occurs after a service. It means spending time with one another so that we can know one another, love one another, help one another, challenge one another when necessary. So how, so how do we begin to show radical, ordinary hospitality? Get to know the people in your church. Start with the people who are sitting around you. Do you know their names? Once you learn their names, maybe you can start asking them questions. Ask them how you can pray for them. And then pray for them. Or here's a bold move. Sit in a different place each week. I know my, I'm supposed to live my life for Christ, but that's a big sacrifice. Be the person who welcomes and befriends others. When Jennifer and I 
moved to Philadelphia. When we visited churches trying to find a home, I tried to be very aware of what was happening. What, what was I experiencing? You know, this is my home. I know you people, and I feel totally comfortable. What does it feel like to be a stranger who walks in? And the church, we decided to, to attend regularly, and we became members there. It was a very uh, uh, um, good church, and the people were friendly. And we were there for a, a, a number of months, but we still really didn't know anybody. Um, and, you know, I was feeling a little indignant about it. Because I'm so lovable. And then, yeah, it just it struck me as, you know, we show up five minutes before service starts. We hang around for two minutes, and then we leave. So Jennifer and I decided, no, we're not going to do that anymore. After service, we're going to stay. And we're not going to look for people to come up to us, because that's what we all do, isn't it? We want people to come up to us, to invite us in. We're going to go to people. And we're going to focus on people who are standing by themselves, because they need a friend. And after a couple of months, we had made a number of uh, good friends. We just had to be willing to try. Invite people into your life. So you've, you've made some Sunday friends. Well, maybe spend some time with people outside of Sunday. Get a cup of coffee. Do a meal. Have a gang night. Let friendships develop so that those relationships can move deeper. We talk about quantity and quality time. You can't have quality without quantity. The quality comes as you spend time together. Join a a small group. You hear this a lot. I'm not saying you have to do that. You can have friendships and community here at Green Tree without being part of something official, but we have small groups to help serve you in this. Join a, a, a growth group. That's, you know, those are gender specific, men with men, women with women, uh, reading and discussing theology, praying together. Or a community fellowship, which are co-ed, and focus on sermon application, having a meal, encouraging one another. Look for ways to express hospitality in your small group. Be part of one another's lives outside of the scheduled time together. Seek to grow and to multiply. We don't want to just huddle in our little group. Don't let anybody in. Well, we get comfortable. We like the dynamics. We love the relationships. We're afraid of change. Grace isn't supposed to end with us. But what we receive, we want to make sure others receive it too. (laughs) 
And this, this might be a, a strange one that if you haven't considered. Don't just give hospitality. Receive it. Don't be so self-sufficient. Invite others into your life. I know it's like to hold people off at a distance. I was, it was uh, Warren's 50th birthday party. Uh, Amy was, uh, had a surprise party for him at a restaurant. And I was uh, sitting at the end of the table with a guy uh, who at the time was part of our church. He's not here anymore. And we were chit-chatting. And he says, I know what you do. I said, what are you talking about? He says, you ask questions so you don't have to talk and share anything. <laughs> He's right, I do. The same church that Jen and I were attending in Philadelphia. The pastor's name is, uh, or was at the time, John Curry. Eventually, we were part of a, a small group that John led. And he was talking, so I was, I was sitting right next to him, so I'm looking at him. And he says, uh, are there any prayer requests? He's, go, he's leading us to pray. And so I'm looking at him. He just looks at me. He says, Eric, do you have any prayer requests? I said, no, I do not. I paused. I said, yeah, I do. I've been here for a year and a half. And I don't want to share any prayer requests. I'm not willing to give you my heart. And I don't think that's right. And then revival broke out. No. It didn't. But that night there were some meaningful conversations. And relationships were deepened. And so I think Christ was honored. Get involved in church life. Serve. Stick around after the service. Invite others into your life. Give and receive hospitality and see what God does in your life and in our life together. The end is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all things, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sin, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your love and your goodness to us. We thank you that uh, even though we can be stubborn and resistant, you are uh, always faithful. And you are persistent in us, urging us and changing us. And Father, we ask that today 
Uh, your spirit would open our eyes to areas where we need to change, uh, places where we are selfish and closed off, and that you would help us uh, to take a step in, in some way uh, to uh, give visible and tangible manifestation to the reality that we are part of you and therefore part of one another. Father, help us because we need your help. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.